Live from the Coachella Valley, time for another hour of the desert scene. Art exhibitions to modernism, music festivals to live theater, big screen, little screen, and very little screen. This is the Culture Corner with Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza. Here's Bonnie and Brian on iHub Radio. And we are back, and we wanted to just start out by doing a quick reminder again about Desert Rose Playhouse and Robbie Wayne, our dear friend who run, runs that wonderful uh, place. They've, of course, moved to the old Zelda's building in Palm Springs and worked very hard to completely renovate it. It's gorgeous. They're not quite done. They're still working. They're working 24 hours a day, and they need help. They started a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, it's just very expensive to renovate a space like that, and they... Um, They've got like $15,000 worth of bills for plumbing, electric, and contracting work. They've got to get all that done to pass inspection next week, and they need your help. Uh, They need people to buy tickets, to donate, and to also come volunteer to paint, hammer, help clean out the place, whatever. Uh, For ticketing or to donate, you can go to DesertRosePlayhouse.org. And there is a GoFundMe campaign, GoFundMe.com slash Desert Rose Playhouse. They really need your help. It's a wonderful space, wonderful theater. They do great shows, and it's going to be a great addition to the Valley. So please help if you can. You know, I was going to say just to remind everybody, like earlier in the show last, I always say that, if you're again, if you're an investor, feel free to come in and talk to uh, Robbie Wayne and talk about it. And be actually, happy to talk to you. Yeah. And you know what? It's a great uh community theater great theater production in general that you need to really uh, we got to save it we got to save it get get them open it'd be a loss to the community but you know when talking about theater why don't we talk about one of the legends of both film and theater judy garland judy garland yesterday was uh her birthday right her birthday she would have turned 99 years old today so next if she had been alive now judy garland you know everybody who knows who she is but if you don't know judy garland is a legend of film and television because i would say television too because of the judy garland show even though it lasted one season it was still pretty good in my opinion she had guests on she's had some legendary performances like with she, broad uh, she had barbara streisand barbara on? streisand yeah. bunch of people and Ju- so i think uh, julie andrews i think she's had a bunch of people on. oh yes uh, yes you had judy uh julie andrews and another legend uh, you know legends among legends and judy garland in my opinion some of her best work include the Wizard of Oz, which of I, is my actual favorite movie of all time. The Wizard of Oz, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. I certainly love Judgment at Nuremberg. She got nominated for an Academy Award for that movie, where she played a best uh, a, a young woman who basically has to relive her trauma of being a um, the wife of a Jewish man that was killed during the Holocaust. You know, I've never seen that. I got I've got to see that. That movie, she. Uh, she gives a really strong performance Mm -hmm. and what I like about it is that there's this moment where she I don't want to spoil it but she has to sit on the stand and she shakes the microphone at the stand in a way that's so impactful and you almost want to cry because of how strong it is mm-hmm. and she's also done movies like Easter Parade Summer Star she was a hell of an actress sometimes she's un- underappreciated as an actress I think I think so too yeah. like even in her day with A Star is Born mm-hmm. when she lost mm-hmm. to Grace Kelly and I don't like to do that thing that a lot of um, other people do which is call Grace Kelly a lesser actress I don't believe so I believe J- Grace Kelly was a great actress on her she's, own she's very different different yeah exactly like a very mm-hmm. different actress so when she won for um, the country girl mm-hmm. in 1954 uh, 1954 
I thought that was a gr- her best performance on her own terms. Mm-hmm. I, I think Grace Kelly deserves her own thing. But I think that that year I would have voted for Judy Garland in A Star is Born because mm-hmm. there's that beautiful monologue. I don't know if you remember where she talks about how she's trying to help out uh, Lester Norman. I believe mm-hmm. that's the name of the character. Mm-hmm. She's trying to help out her husband in that movie. Yeah. And she goes on about how she can't help him and that she loves him. And it's a dr- strain on her. But she has to live with that. Yeah. And I think the final line of A Star is Born I know they changed it for the Lady Gaga version and the Barbra Streisand version, but the final line, the way she delivers it, I, I, I cry every time I see it because it's just that impactful. I don't, and, and I've forgotten the final line. Remind me. And my name, I th- it's the, f- for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's an older movie, so mm. excuse me for spoiling an older movie. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so it's, she's like, this, hello, everybody. This is, mi- when, this is Mrs. Norman Maine. Okay. When she accepts the award for her, yeah. the I think the okay. tribute for her husband. Yeah. Okay. And this is uh, Mrs. Norman Maine, and okay. and everybody applauds, and I think it's such a great uh, finale. And it's not because she, you know, subser- is subservient to her man, but because the fact that she is going to continue his legacy right. and love him enough to do that. Right. And I think that's one of the great things about that movie. And the AFI Institute named her the eighth greatest female uh, screen legend of all time. And she has won. She won an Academy Award, like a tiny juvenile Academy Award, but she never won a formal one. Mm -hmm. So over the years, Judy Garland has become sort of a legend and even an icon in the LGBT community, you know. And most people even say that her death might have sparked the Stonewall riots because the Stonewall riot happened the day that she died. See, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that connection. Okay. So for years, people have always said, you know, the gays were so mad that Judy Garland died that they attacked the cops that came in. And when I'm like, okay, that that's not a little bit it. of a stretch, stretch there. Yeah, yeah. It's just a quick incident. And mm-hmm. but it is a but it is a connection there. And I've seen interviews where Judy Garland has had. She acknowledged her gay fan base. I'm mm-hmm. gonna be honest. She acknowledged it, but she wasn't like over the moon about it. She's mm-hmm. like, you know, they're they're gay men. Yeah. But I'm sure she's, but she's had a contra- an interesting life in her in itself because her dad was, I gay. Her father and is didn't gay. She, as I recall, as I remember reading a, a biography about her at one point, didn't she have a very. Uh, um, contentious relationship with her mother wasn't her mother like a stage mother and they had some issues yeah yeah i think it i don't know if you've noticed but a lot of like with with one exception a lot of older movie stars have had bad stage mothers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the only one i can think of that was an exception was shirley temple mm-hmm. that shirley temple's mother and her shirley temple's mother apparently was very protective and yeah. even in the case of like Haley mills which was a couple dick in a different era of film yeah. she also had a mother that a father that was more protective whereas mm-hmm. in the case of judy garland's mother she's like okay you gotta, gotta put her she's on drugs pushed pushed her yeah, yeah yeah and she didn't care like you gotta put judy on uh uppers do yeah. it whatever it takes to get the film and get the whatever i i just have to bring this up because it just popped in my head and i guess it must have been on her sh- television show i once saw uh that i'm sure you can google it uh, of Judy Garland, it was just hilarious. She was sitting at a table in a like an apartment, and she's singing uh, "Smoke It's in Your Eyes," oh, and yeah. the apartment catches on fire, 
and she keeps on singing and the firemen come in with their hoses and they carry her out it's hilarious <laughs> it is so funny and she keeps on singing she never breaks uh, character once it's hilarious you know I actually think that that's one of my favorite things about her is that there's a lot of her show had a lot of creativity mm-hmm. and I think that's one of my favorite parts of that show was smoke gets in your eyes because she's just sitting so there funny. like and the thing is though even though the show ran for 26 episodes it had a lot of problems because there would be different showrunners like George Slatter directed the first five episodes another person produced the next uh, the s- episode 6 to 13 and then finally the rest of the show was produced by someone else so mm-hmm. even though there's, there's no, sh- no continuity really no continuity on that yeah. end but I uh, there's debates about which era is the best I haven't to be honest with you I think all of it's pretty consistently good mm-hmm. but I think towards the end I can kind of see why the show fell apart because of the fact that the ratings went down the drain but also even and even though fans wanted to save it and they rallied for it i think at that point at that point i think that the variety show had was been, on its way out a little bit anyway yeah it was on its way out <laughs> but also because the variety show it, it was not just on its way out but i think it was overdone like i think pe- too many people were doing oh, them. overdoing it yeah, yes yeah. of course and i think judy garland had a certain type of variety hour that people really loved but i think maybe like let's say you're watching it and and maybe like there's another variety show where there's more comedy in it you might switch the station you might switch there instead of a comedy hour that's it had comedy too don't get me wrong yeah but it's just that it also had you know music tied into it and depending can we uh, can we talk about her voice for just a minute um we were talked about this off 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 air um you know judy garland is known as a legend and she was absolutely no no one's going to deny that and she was somebody who just poured her guts out on stage in a song that's one of the reasons people loved her is is she connected with her audience and that's important as a performer but especially as she got older i wasn't a big fan of her voice because it was a lot of vibrato at times and sometimes she could get strident she could get a little strident and um you know and i just as just to sit and listen to her especially when she got older I don't love her voice. I mean, she she poured her guts out. I mean, she, that that there's no questioning that. But I just the, her her particular style of voice didn't do it for me. Let me ask you, Bonnie. Do you think because do you think the earlier stuff is better, like Wizard of Oz and Meet oh, yeah. St. Louis? I liked her better as a singer in Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Absolutely. I think for me, like I I think from what I please uh, correct me, but I think a part of it could be that towards the end of her life, drugs, she drugs, was doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. The and drugs. Booze, yeah. Mm-hmm. The drugs. I think the prop, I know you said that she puts everything in there, but I think it was at a point towards the end that it was everything. Yeah. And that, do you feel like you felt like it was uncomfortable for you listening to her voice at that point? Yeah. You know, I really don't, I do really, I mean, it was tough, I think, to watch for towards the end to watch because I think people knew that she was sort of having a break, having a breakdown at that point. Yes, but it wasn't that the emotion made me uncomfortable. That that's not it. I it takes a lot for emotion to make me uncomfortable. It just was the sound of her voice. I mean, I've yeah. seen people. I heard singers who could be very emotional, but just had great instruments also. Oh, yeah. And it was a, a beautiful sound in addition to being... I mean, a great example of that is Paul Robeson doing Old Man River. Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, you hear Paul Robeson doing Old Man River. To me, once he did that, you don't have to do anything else the rest of your life. I mean, he's, he, he's poured his guts out, but it was a great sound, too. 
Oh yeah. I mean, the thing about Judy Garland is that like I towards the end of her career, I think people tend to forget that the self-destructiveness was apparent. Yes. And there's a movie that came out a couple years uh, two years ago called Judy, which I sat with in Renee Zerwager mm-hmm. and I sat there and said, "You know what? My problem with this is that it really it wanted to be a tribute to Judy Garland, but it didn't want to capture the real her. And I feel like if you want to capture Judy Garland, you got to show her at their most pain. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. don't have to exploit it. But, but you got to see a little bit of it to be gotta, realistic. Yeah, yeah. And I feel also that they made a mistake in that movie having her sing mm-hmm. instead of Judy Garland, uh, dubbing, dubbing in Judy, in Judy Garland. Judy. And I also think that towards the end of her career, Judy Garland had it was just a lot of pain and also like when you see her final performance like one of her final movies a child is waiting you can see like this real pain in her eyes that's very hard to avoid and i think that when you watch her movie careers you see a tapestry of her life story like wizard of oz the peak or meet Mm -hmm. me in st louis the sort of like struggling young girl Mm -hmm. you see all these the way her movies almost tell her story was it of oz a girl lost mm-hmm. trying to find herself uh, meet me in st louis a girl falling in love and trying to seek out a normal life a star is born a self-destructive story mm-hmm. a story and then judgment at nuremberg things are starting to get bad and then a child is waiting life is yeah getting worse it's yeah i think you i mean you have some you have a point there yeah it's yep. a tapestry yep. but I, and that's the mo- those are the movies I recommend those specific movies and also The Clock which is her first non-singing dramatic role about okay. a woman who falls in love with a man within the span of an hour okay. and it's a great movie on TCM check it out when you get a okay. chance alright we're back with much more on the Culture Corner right after this The curtain rises on local and regional arts and entertainment. From music to theater, films to fine art, it's The Culture Corner. Get connected. Call 760-544-TALK. That's 760-544-8255. Here's Bonnie and Brian on iHub Radio. And with the pandemic still kind of lingering its ugly it's head lingering, around lingering, yes. It's, we're getting to the end of it, but I also believe that we're still not exactly in the middle of it, but towards the end of the second act, mm-hmm. not quite in the third act. Yeah. But a lot of governments have actually decided to start opening things up and mm-hmm. start loosening up restrictions, including here in California. In, fi- in literally four days, California will drop a lot of restrictions and mm-hmm. essentially be reopened. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And... Our next story actually does relate to that. So Andrew Lloyd Webber, who we all know as the composer of Phantom of the Opera, Evita, and Evita, um, Jesus Christ Superstar, Cats. A number of shows, yeah. A number of shows. Now, I'm going to play a little guessing game with you. What do you think all these shows have in common? If there's one element about all these shows that you can name, other than the composer, they're very weird shows, all separate. What do you think is a defining quality of all his shows let me think for a second um you know i was trying to think of their you know based on something else but now well jesus christ superstar wasn't based on something else like maybe the bible right, well, that, okay <laughs> you're right you're right oh and that's, yeah, that's a good guess but I, uh, it's something else like something well, technical very something technical 
Um, or even, hmm, just a guess. We'll see. I'll, I'll have the answer. Well, I mean, they're all very majestic in their own way. All, uh, well, no, Phantom doesn't have that large a cast, I guess. Um, hey, you actually, you actually hit it there. Large. Okay. They're all big musicals. Big, big productions. Musics. Yeah. So, do you, I was going to say, I know we talked earlier about like smaller productions and all that. Now, do you think a musical, can you think of a practical way, in your opinion, for musicals like Phantom of the Opera with require huge chandeliers, chandeliers and stuff, yeah. and Cats, which requires literally like giant set to, mm. because there's a flying wheel at the end of yeah. it, or in the case of like Starlight Express, which is maybe his worst musical. It's a whole different thing, yeah. A whole yeah. skating ring. Yeah. And Evita, which requires like crowds. Crowds, yeah. Do you think there's any practical way, in your opinion, that they can do that during restrictions right now? Like if you can... Is there any way? Let's let's be honest. I think like, it would be tough. It would be tough. Yeah. I think so, yeah. too. So, Andrew Lloyd Webber said that he is... He said in an interview that he is going to try to reopen all the theaters on starting June 25th, all his West End theater productions of Cinderella because Cinderella is starting to do previews. And at the West End Theater in UK, which is the equivalent of the UK equivalent of Broadway. Broadway yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. For those of you who don't know, but I'd be surprised if you don't know, you're listening to the show. <laughs> like, <laughs> but according to this, they're tr the government said they might have to push it back maybe a few days and all that, which mm. I'm not surprised that they will because of the fact that there's a COVID variant, the Delta COVID variant. And he, and Andrew Lou Weber is furious about it, saying that he, he thinks it's impossible to open up his shows and those restrictions. And he has stated, we can open safely. Please, please let us open. And he said, they can come to our theater and arrest me. And that is actually the statement that he's been said has been going around he said he is ready to get arrested if his theaters open up now so let me just clarify some details here uh are they so he doesn't want any restrictions like number of audience or seating or anything like that he wants no restrictions no restrictions and i think the restrictions in his eyes are not necessarily the audience but the Per, the amount of people on stage on stage okay yes. and i think that that's a whole, i think we often forget about the the audience is not the only amount right, of people exactly, like exactly. it's on stage so mm -hmm. i do want to sympathize a little tiny bit with andrew lloyd weber like i get it like mm -hmm. his musicals are big and there's and there is this pressure to have these big musicals by him and no, because I don't think when you go to an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that you expect it to be small scaled. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been to a production of Phantom with a small chandelier, and it doesn't hit the same. <laughs> it no. Okay. It, the chandelier was about as small as this, a little bit smaller than this table, for example. Okay. That's how small it was. Okay. And this table is actually ten, two times bigger than that chandelier. Okay. And oh my God, like I, I get that, but I also believe that he needs. He needs to be. Th he probably should. I don't know. I don't, it's a hard question for me to answer. Like it's a hard thing to answer. I get his sentiment, but it's also like you know. I think he could afford to be a little bit patient. Wait, yeah. Yes. It's not like he's starving. Number one. Yeah, and it's like we've all waited so long. And you know, if you maybe maybe he should figure out a way to branch out and find or write or create some smaller cast shows for now. Yeah. You know, try something new. Try something small with, you know, five or six people in the cast instead of, you know, and just see. I mean, because here's the thing. 
it's it's really comes down to just the, the people that were f- punching people out about wearing masks. This is a life or death situation, and you're talking about people's health, lives and their health. And you know, putting off a big having a big musical for another month or so for Andrew Lloyd Webber, who's not starving to death. If he can't do that, then he's being selfish. Yeah, and what shocked me that was about how his attitude changed because in the beginning of the pandemic he was like i'm gonna put on some free shows online let's get some free recordings mm-hmm. put them online for 20 for 48 hours on youtube yeah and i thought that's a great attitude andrew Lloyd weber yeah. that really is and i respect andrew Lloyd weber a lot for a lot of reasons i respect his yeah he's it, an amazingly talented yeah i respect his statements about how diversity is important i respect mm. i respect his craft too like they're yeah. big musicals but they're still quality i however feel like this is the wrong move for him and also i feel like again you're not starving no you're not yeah. starving hello and he could you know and he could save some smaller theater productions yeah. if he wanted to absolutely too. that's what he should do but All hey, right, we'll be right back yes You're listening to Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza talking arts and entertainment on iHub Radio's The Culture Corner. Live from the desert cities of Southern California, here's Brian and Bonnie. And we are back on the Culture Corner, and now we're joined by Carol Teitelbaum, who's a very interesting woman. I've run into it at a couple of you know events, like Women's Leaders Forum and that kind of thing. And she, uh, the two different things we want to talk about today. One is she is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and uh, she's the president of the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, and uh, chairs the It Happens to Boys Project, which is about um, helping uh, men and teen boys who have been abused as children, because it does happen to boys too and then we also want to talk about a book that she's written hi carol how are you i'm good how are you good so let's talk about your uh therapy work first um uh, obviously you've had quite a career as a therapist how did you uh, get involved in sort of specializing if you will uh on helping men and teens have been abused as children How, how did that is that what you started out specializing in or did that evolve well, I started studying child abuse back in 1985, <laughs> a long time ago, and with Alice Miller, who's one of the leading abuse survivor um, workshop authors back then. She was really well-known. She wrote the drama The Gifted Child and the Body Always Remembers, and I studied with her, and she talked a lot about perpetrators, and then she talked about you know, what happens, what happens to the body, what happens to relationships. And so I've always worked with survivors from back when, that's when I got licensed in 1985. But then I I was on the DA's committee for child abuse Mm -hmm. back in the 1990s, and the doctor who was in charge of uh, Eisenhower's emergency room said, you know, I'm seeing that there's a lot less boys reporting sexual abuse than there are girls. And I have a hunch that that's not really the case. Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you think? And I was the co-chair of the Coachella Valley Child Abuse um, Council then. And I said, you know what, I'll take that back to our council and see if they'll take that on as a project. And we did, and we had a billboard, and we had flyers, and we got postcards made. And one of the men in my group did the art for the postcards and for the um, billboard. And then after a while, 
I decided that I was going to take this even further, and I have a conference every year. It happens to boys, and we have some of the most amazing speakers like John Bradshaw, John Lee, Patrick Carnes, who's the leading sexual addiction therapist there is in the world, and Claudia Black. And every time I called, and, and Dave Pelzer, who wrote A Child Called It, Mm-hmm. And every time I would call someone, you know, I would say, we can't afford your salary. I know that you're amazing and you make a lot of money, but we can't afford it. And when I told them what I was doing, they said, we'll help you. And they reduced their fees so much. And then we started a group for men who started, you know, that started This is 13 years ago. We've been doing this. We go out to recovery centers. We speak at colleges and middle schools. Um it's just grown and grown and grown since then. And the reason that you know, everybody asks me, you're a woman, why are you dealing with men who have been abused? But the statistics are one in three girls and one in four boys are sexually abused by the time they're 18. Wow. And wow. what I tell people is there's a lot of untreated male sexual abuse survivors going out around out there. And what happens to them, because they feel so shamed, that they don't feel like they can talk about it because they've been told ever since they were little kids, buck up, be a man, don't cry, right. don't share your feelings, don't ask anybody for help. So they are told that if you admit this, you're not a real man. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel like they can tell anybody. So what I tell people is their feelings turn to rage. And women are not the same, but for men, the feelings they push down turn to rage, and that's road rage, domestic violence, child abuse. Right. And then they turn to drug and alcohol to make that shame go away. Mm-hmm. So if we don't help the men, they're going to continue to hurt women and children. Right, exactly. And that's I do what I do. That's a long version. Yeah. So have you found over the years since you've been doing this, um, does it seem like the stigma has been reduced a little bit? Are you finding that at all? A little bit, but not that much. Mm-hmm. You know, what happens is there's a big case. We actually got called when Penn State happened. We got called to help them. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened, it was all, you know, everybody talked about it. Everybody wanted to do something about it. They said they were going to do a lot of things about it. And we're going to have a conference. And they were so excited they could talk to me. And then as it continued on, you know, they actually told me, you can come to our conference, but you got to pay your own way. And I'm like, wait a minute. You have wow. To help me. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to pay my own way? I don't think that's right. And then when Sandusky was found guilty, I got a call again. They said, okay, everybody's fine now, right? He was found guilty. I go, no, their healing is just starting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happens when somebody's in the news. Everybody's talking about it. As soon as it's off the news, it goes underground again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people have told me the most outrageous thing, like boys can't be abused or they just get over it. You know, it's not a big deal. And it is a big deal. It is a really big deal. Absolutely. Uh, Carol, mm-hmm. my co-host Brian has a question for you. Now, okay. I, I actually had a question for you because, like, funny enough, there was this, you know, actually not funny enough because it isn't funny in my opinion. It's actually really sad. There was a story recently published about Kevin Spacey who was accused of sexual assault and his victim was men, right? His victims were young men as opposed to women. Now, I wanted to ask you, do you think in a lot, uh, Kevin Spacey actually got rehired for another movie role? 
which is something mm-hmm. that I've noticed has not happened to other people who have been accused of sexual assault if their victim was a woman so far. So I wanted to ask I you. Know. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on that, but I also wanted to ask: Do you think in a lot of cases, like even though it's already hard enough to sort of like uh, to persecute people who have raped women, do you think it's difficult enough to? Do you think in some cases it's more difficult to if persecute it's a man. if yeah. the victim, victim was a man? Yes, it is. Because everybody, I say that all the time, and I'm glad you brought that up, Randy. It's a woman. There's not even a question that he should be punished, that he's wrong. In fact, it's going so far over the other way that, you know, men can barely smile at someone without somebody getting upset about it. Yeah. So we don't want it to go so far over the other way that we punish our men or look badly on them because it's not all men that are like that. It's the few perpetrators that are like that, not all men. All men are not bad. Right. And I really want people to hear that. But yes, and even for men who are abused by a woman, they give them a high five. They don't go, oh, that was awful. It's so misunderstood, and there's so many myths about what it means when a boy is abused. Uh- and then, he, then he, if he's abused by a man... He questions his sexuality because okay then right. do I want it do I do I go out I mean am I man enough and then they usually go out and have sex with lots of women to prove to that prove something man. yeah Carol what because uh, I want to talk about your book in just a second um, if yeah. somebody <laughs> if someone wanted to get a hold of you maybe to have you come speech speak or do a program yeah. about this issue what's the best way to get a hold of you. Um, they can send me an email at catbaum, C-A-T-B like in boy, A-U-M like in Mary at earthlink.net. Okay. I want to switch gears for a second while we have you to talk about, uh, you're also an author and you've uh, 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 authored a lot of articles and a lot of, uh, uh, an author with your husband, Robert, and you have this book, Hiding in Plain Sight, A Personal Window into Organized Crime in the 1920s through the 50s. Tell us about that and how you came up with that that, uh, uh, subject matter. Okay, we got to switch gears real quick. Yeah. Uh, uh, my husband's parents were Al Capone's attorneys, oh. as along, along with 14 other members of the Chicago outfit. They started out in law school at John Marshall Law School in Chicago, and they graduated in 1928. And my mother-in-law's uncle was the attorney for Al Capone, and he had a $30,000 gambling debt with them he couldn't pay. Mm-hmm. And so... The mob started coming, and then he hot-footed it out of town and left everybody holding the bag, and the mafia came after my um, my husband's grandparents, threatening them if they didn't pay. And so here's my mother-in-law, and she wasn't married to my father-in-law, but they were friends, and they had just graduated, and they said, okay, if they become our attorneys, we'll let the debt go. Wow. So through it. To fate and a gambling debt, they became the attorneys for Al Capone and 14 other members of the Chicago outfit. So my husband and I heard all these stories for years and years and years separately together. One told us one, one told us another one. And so we decided we might as well write the stories down. So that's what we did. So this is really a book about their relationships with all these different clients, Al Capone, Bugsy Siegel, you know, all these people who... You know, everyone's so fascinated about. And he grew up at the Loveless Ranch in Indio. It was built for Franklin Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. And he never took possession because he passed away. But Eleanor came out and said, it's too damn hot here. So she left. 
And Walter Kirshner sold it to my father-in-law. So that's where he grew up on this big gate ranch on Madison and 111. It's been torn down now, but the foundation is still there. Mm-hmm. And you can see kind of where the pool was and everything. Yeah. And they had these huge parties with elected officials and the mafia. <laughs> and wow. All together. So yeah. a, a, a question about the book. So did, were you concerned at all? I know a lot of these people have passed away at this point. But were you concerned at all about, uh, did you feel free enough to be totally honest? Were you concerned about any relatives or heirs of people in, in the book being upset about any of it? Well, one of our uh, cousins was upset about it. But Robert, I said, Robert has a right to tell his story. You know, we mm-hmm. didn't put in... We changed some of the names of people who we thought might not be happy with it. Mm-hmm. But it's a story that needed to be told because it happened right here in the Coachella Valley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people know there's other books that were written about the Coachella Valley and how it was a no-kill zone and the mafia had been shooting each other here and they could come and have meetings. And, you know, I thought my um, husband grew up with all these people at the ranch coming in because it had 11-foot high walls all around it. Because of the, they had secret service in their house, and mm-hmm. it was all built for Roosevelt. So the mafia could come and have these meetings with 11 high-foot walls. So he grew up seeing all these people, you know, on a yeah. regular basis. And fascinating. And it was also really tragic for him because they hired bodyguards to protect the kids. And one of the bodyguards actually sexually abused him. Oh, jeez. Oh. And, his, and his sister's. Oh, my gosh. What looked so perfect on the outside was not so perfect on the inside. I'm just curious, why was it a no, why was the Palm Springs area considered a no-kill zone for mafia folks? That's interesting. Because they could come here and relax and have fun. And they all agreed that this was a safe place for them to come and have meetings and not hurt each other. Wow. That's it. Just that alone is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, when, when did the book come out? How long has the book been out? It's been out uh, two years. Okay. And how's it? How's my, husband, my husband wrote another book called Fogs and Snails and Mob Tales. Uh-huh. Growing Up in the Shadow of Al Capone. And that's about his relationship with the parents and about his abuse. So that's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. All right. The website yeah. is Catbomb, C-A-T-B-A-U. No, my web, the website is uh, creativechangeconferences.com. Okay. I'm sorry, creativechangeconferences.com. Yeah, my email is catbomb at earthlink.net. Excellent. So they can find the book, the book there, and also find out more about your uh, work with therapy. And I think that is so great. It's it's work that needs to be done. Thank you for doing that because it's something that you write is not talked about enough. And and the shame, I know, shame is a big part mm-hmm. of it. And uh, thank you for for helping so many men and their families deal with this. And congratulations, and also on the book too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you, Carol. Carol Teitelbaum, check out the book, Hiding in Plain Sight. We'll be back with more on The Culture Corner in just a moment. You're listening to Bonnie Gilgallen and Brian Mendoza, talking arts and entertainment on iHub Radio's The Culture Corner. Here are Bonnie and Brian. And we are back, and I just want to get this one thing in, and we just spoke, spoke with Carol Teitelbaum, a fabulous, fabulous guest, and she, uh, we uh, forgot to mention, she and her husband own a local publishing company, www.teitelbaum, and that's T-E-I-T-E-L-B-A-U-M, 
www.titlebombpublishing.com. www.titlebombpublishing.com. That's where you can get the book, Hiding in Plain Sight. Okay. Hey, so I was actually going to want to talk about... So there's an author named uh, Eileen Hildenbrand. Elaine Hildenbrand. I always forget how to say her name. But she has written a lot of books that are very famous for being beach reads. You basically read it on the beach. It Mm -hmm. has... It's famous for its beach stories and all that. Easy read. Easy reads. But they're still... I'm going to give her credit. They're still pretty complex books and they're very thoughtful. Summer of 69 is a really good book in my personal opinion. But... Even her newest book, which I've read bits and pieces of, is good. I think it's probably her best work, but it has gotten a lot of controversy. And even she admits maybe she made a mistake. So Eileen Hildebrand has asked for the and reference to be cut out of her book for future publishing and for digital release. And the reason why referencing Anne Frank in her book might not have been the best thing in the world is that she said... She had a character who's planning on staying in her friend's attic. There's this par- there's a part in it where a character talks about it and she says, "You're suggesting I hide here like all summer?" Vivi asks. Like like Anne Frank, this makes them both laugh, but it's real but it is really funny and so is Vib so far off base. It's basically that it was an offhand It's not not funny. An offhand no. joke. Yeah. And again, I was quoting the book there, so I don't think necessarily it's funny, but the characters in the story, they both laugh. That was a section of the book. Yeah, and it, was, book. and it was bad taste, yeah. I, I think in a lot of people have actually said that it was casual anti-Semitism, and they felt like she herself made it sort of like a throwaway line, sort of dismissive of the experience yeah. that she had. And even then, later on, she actually did form an apology and said, you know what? She said it was meant to be hyperbolic because it was in the context of children, right? And she wrote, but it was a poor choice that was offensive and tasteless. Those of you who read Summer of 69 will realize Anne Frank was a courageous young woman whom I've revered. And her story remains deeply influential in my life. I will always strive to write in good faith. Golden Girl is a novel that I wrote for my children and wanted them to be proud of every word. But she has asked the publisher to remove it Mm-hmm. from the digital versions and that from future printings you could but technically go out and buy if you want to have that passage in there there is there are copies you could out find there. it you, you could can find, find it if you still, wanted to yeah but in the next printing it will not be yeah. on there well you know what i have yeah you know it was it, it was stupid and it was in bad taste but you have to give her credit for acknowledging it apologizing and taking out a future future copies so that's good yeah and also i feel like this is a case of like i think we've heard this story a lot recently about authors who go back and realize you know what maybe that wasn't the best thing Mm -hmm. i think that again just to reiterate it's it's every right of an author to realize their mistake it's their material and they have the it's not it's not cancel culture it's nobody else taking it out it's the author deciding on their own yeah of course and i think it's great that she did that me personally like looking at the line i can i understand why in the context of the line it was children saying it but i also understand fully that like it it was the the character the story of it from my understanding is that it's a woman watching over some children from like the beyond like basically heaven mm. and that the older woman is kind of laughing at it too so i kind of feel like if she wanted to contextualize it better, she could have those lines in there, but have the older woman who's watching over them to sort of be like, huh, that's not great. That, right. That, like, instead of sort of laughing along with it, I mean, I get... Call them on it that call, it's not funny. Yeah. yeah, call them on it or have somebody say like, oh my God, but that's... D-. Like, I because w- I've seen conversations like this where someone... I've been in real life where someone would make a statement like, oh my God, it, 
staying at home. I feel like Anne Frank, and then someone saying, "Hey, you know what? That's that not cool. That's not funny." <laughs> that yeah. was that she had poor taste. She had no, no choice. choice. No Thank choice. You. you know, because what happens is some some someone's going to read that book, or some teenager, some young person is going to read that book and think and see that section. And think that this author thought that was okay, and they'll think it's funny, and then p- carry that on to someone else and think it's funny, and, and it's not. And it also gives you the wrong impression of Hildenbrand, especially considering mm-hmm. that when Summer of Six and Nine, her characters have a lot of respect for Anne Frank and like sympathize with her. So it's sort of like this weird thing where I think maybe she felt a little too comfortable in the story. Because in my personal opinion, like the Anne Frank story, I always tell people, you know, don't be very careful with how you admire that story you know don't Mm -hmm. like make jokes about it or feel too comfortable about it because it is meant to be uncomfortable when you read it Mm -hmm. though like because it is her personal experiences and Mm -hmm. to and also not to like i i think in a lot of ways even anne frank's father has said like he never felt like people should view her daughter as a hero but to sort of view her story as sort of a story that needed to be told Mm -hmm. more so than anything Mm -hmm. and so i think hildebrand probably got too comfortable with the material and decided you know i'm gonna make a make a offhanded joke that teenagers would make and i Mm -hmm. get that but i also feel like when i watch stuff about teenagers teenagers are not as dumb as we make them out to be you know Mm -hmm. i feel like if you i've seen a lot of very authentic depictions of teenagers in which they're very respectful and very thoughtful and some some, some are, of course yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, even the ones even and even the it's about it's the framing device mm-hmm. for example if the book framed those jokes as unfunny then you could get away with it maybe because you're contextualizing it mm-hmm. it's like i've seen movies about racist teenagers but in the story it's made clear that they're the villains exactly the and villain. that's the difference yeah and because the, here's the thing there's really nothing funny about the Holocaust. No, and Nazis. of course. There's just not. You know, there's nothing funny about it. So Yeah. And the only person who got away with making any type of joke wasn't even making fun of it directly was, you know, Charlie Chaplin with mm-hmm. The Great Dictator. But he was making fun of, like, dictatorships in general, but he wasn't making fun of it. And that was a, lar- that was a larger context. And it yeah. Was, yeah that's, di- that's different. And yeah. also, I always tell people, if you're not... Mel Brooks or Charlie Chaplin don't try it don't try it because you're not talented enough to even try it (laughs) (laughs) exactly and and they're not even making the jokes that I've seen some people make they're making jokes about at the expense of the bad people yeah so let's talk some something positive positive right like let's end our show on a positive note Taraji P. Henson is gonna do is gonna be playing Mrs. Hannigan on the upcoming NBC um, production of and Annie. Annie. Annie Live. Annie, it's Annie, Annie Live, live. Oh, yes. Good. Cool. So Taraji P. Hansen, I think she'll be a great Absolutely. Mrs. Hannigan personally. Do you've li- we've talked about it. You've you've seen her in a couple things? I've seen yes, I love her. I think she's great. What was the thing where she was the um like the gangster's wife for the uh, Empire. Uh, Empire. I saw some yeah. of a little <laughs> bit of that. Yeah. Uh, you might as well call that character a gangster because he is like a music um producer but he is very gangster like yeah yeah she's fabulous i love her i I love her too i also loved her very much in um hidden figures i did not see that you gotta see that's a great we gotta watch that sometime but i'm excited go taraji p henson yay and thank you so much to all our guests to uh, jorm elliott and carol teitelbaum and please help out the desert playhouse if you can go volunteer buy tickets donate we love you robbie all right we'll be back with more next week